and welcome to the Dicer Screaming Podcast. Ow. Oh, them dice are howling. They are. Yes, it is that season, and it's our last of the spooky season podcast. So, hey, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, we've had a lot of fun working on this and uh, bringing you some different things. Yeah, we did tend to go off the beaten path with these, and uh, we're going to continue that because we're going to be talking about Kolchak the Night Stalker. We're just going to be doing an homage and a review, as well as some takeaways as things that go bump in the night that can also go bump on the game table. Yeah, look, the inspirational precursors to horror gaming uh, have their place in the inspirational television shows. Uh, and not just the most recent ones, but we we really want to like use this as an opportunity to homage the show that in particular took place at precisely the time that gaming was evolving. Uh, and not just like fantasy role-playing games, but also like the as fantasy role-playing games were beginning to evolve, uh, it was not too much longer after that that the first horror games began to evolve out of that. So here's this one show that we're going to take a peek at that had an oversized influence, like just this massive, big foot footprint. Uh, <laughs> ooh, you know, uh, that looms over the scene. And that's Kolchak. So, yeah, no kimono fluttering. We're just going to say exactly what's going on today. Right on. And before we get into it, we have a couple things to take care of. Uh, first of all, we appreciate, uh, we got a call in from Jason. We're going to get to you right away. But uh, before that, we're going to do the foretelling of what the future lays and has in store for us. The Tassiomancer examines the grounds of his coffee. Yes, yes. What do the grounds tell me? <gasps> still my heart next well, week we're looking at cyberpunk red oh yeah hey uh world cyberpunk day was just uh, last month or well in that last month's view as uh october's about ready to be in the rear view mirror so yeah we're gonna go and just take a deep dive into this newest incarnation of the cyberpunk rules which we covered with the jump start but here we got the full rule book and all the fixings plus some uh, insights from Mike Pondsmith and some of the other authors that have contributed greatly to the cyberpunk role-playing game, as well as just the general overview of how cyberpunk is rooted in a specific mindset. Oh, it is absolutely a unique mindset. Uh, it, it is kind of, in many respects, apart from other games in that respect. Uh, that <laughs> yeah, you know, Blade Runner is so heavily influenced in or influenced uh, the Neuromancer and Walter John Williams, Hardwired and Reap the Whirlwind. Yeah, the, these are things that have an outsized influence on the creation of that game. Uh, a game that, like in many respects, became its own genre, which, uh, wow, you know, it, it's an accomplishment. I love First Causes, uh, and Cyberpunk Gaming is one of those moments where something happened that really hadn't been done before. Uh, you you saw plenty of like the the rise of Traveler, mm -hmm. uh, and the rise of like the Warhammer, which was miniatures gaming, but the fantasy sorry the the science fiction background was there. Uh, obviously inspired by things like Foundation and you know uh, other novels. Yeah. But, uh, 
you also saw fantasy, which was like the more historical aspects. What you didn't really see a lot of, in fact, what you saw almost none of, was that mid-future, that like birth canal moment of the future, that dystopic, uh, urban science fiction that still has a connection to the world in which we live today. Not a distant, uh, fantastic landscape of alien worlds and wonder, uh, but instead a gritty, unpleasant reality of an urban future dominated by enormous financial powers and weak governments and just corrosive corruption everywhere. Along with environmental disasters. Yeah, just this really unpleasant look. That, it simply didn't exist. There was no replacement for that. And so Cyberpunk gives us our first window into that. So that's why we're looking at Cyberpunk Red next week. Right. And Tassio Manzer has spoken. <clears throat> and before we get into uh, Jason's podcast, you can expect no less. <laughs> expect no less from the Ben Cooper Halloween costume of gaming podcasts. Oh, boy. <laughs> what was that, about a dollar and a half? Yeah. <laughs> it's cheap. And you're not going to be very proud of it. Maybe you'll wear it once, but you'll get the job done, I guess. <laughs> yeah, this is not going to make a pretty picture. <laughs> oh, <right>. man. <laughs> Look, not everybody's going to get that one, but uh, the 70s kids will totally get that. Uh, I suggest just running a search string on that for your own comedy value. Okay? Yeah, if you don't get it, just Google Ben Cooper Costumes. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> it's so worth it. <laughs> oh, it's, it's right up there with, like, people of Walmart. <laughs> oh. All right. Well, hey, um, we got a call in from Jason, so let's get to it. Take hey. it away, Jason. Hey, guys. Just want to mention, I for your Coltrack show, I hope you mentioned Dan Curtis when we talked about him a little bit. He wasn't really involved in the TV show for Coltrack, although he, you, you know, was responsible for two movies. Night Stalker, Night Strangler. And of course, Dan Curtis did Dark Shadows, but Dan Curtis did a ton of TV movies more than it during the 70s. More than anybody, Dan Curtis was responsible for bringing horror to TV movies in the 70s. You know, he did some great things. We have, of course, the Night Stalker things. We have the Norlis tapes. We have Turn of the Screw. We have Scream of the Wolf. We have the Trilogy of Terror. You know, he directed Burnt Offerings, which I don't think, I think that was a theater movie. Of course, he did Curse of the Black Widow, one of my favorites. Uh, he just did a ton of great things. And these are all things you could take in mine for games, right? And he collaborated with Richard Matheson a lot. So I hopefully you give Dan Curtis a little bit of love. All right. Well, thanks, Jason. Yeah, that, uh, I think, uh, you did everything that we could have talked about Dan, for about Dan Curtis for us. So thanks a lot. Yeah, uh, Dan Curtis, yeah, we'll mention him. Um, he had a contentious relationship with uh, Darren McGavin during this. So he uh, basically, when he left, uh, I think that was uh, pretty much it. So, yeah, so Kolchak the Night Stalker. Yeah, here we go. Um, I, I want to... <clears throat> Before we jump into the preludes, but yeah. uh, but what did you want to say, like just as your opener? Oh man, you know this is a show that I ABC wasn't uh, heavily uh, broadcast in our area when I was younger, so I didn't catch these 
on TV as much, but I did catch him on the CBS Late Show where it went into syndication, and that's oh. where I got it from. So, yeah, this factor pretty large. It, it was for me almost like those EC comic moments. <laughs> you know, it was my first brush with real strangeness lurking at the shadows of our reality. So, yeah, it it is fitting that when we talk about uh, Dan Curtis uh, doing Dark Shadows, that, uh, of course, that fits with the overall theme here. All right. Uh, to give a window into, like, yeah, the, the where's and how's, it's not like television was devoid of material prior to Jack the Night Stalker. Uh, not so. But it, it's so sparsely populated compared to today's television landscape. Uh, the cable networks offer people a level of variety that means that the person who enjoys the horror, the supernatural, the weird, we can find the stuff we want so easily. Not so circa the 1970s, 60s, and 50s. So to move back to like first causes, and I, I can't you know, devote a ton of time to these, I, I just want to reference Hitchcock Presents, uh, which was Alfred Hitchcock's brief series that, uh, you know, had the weird tales type vibe. Uh, then Twilight Zone. Oh, well, yeah, the big Twilight Zone right there. Yeah, that's Rod Serling's turf. Now, these drifted into science fiction, uh, you know, like, oh, The Outer Limits. Uh, Oh, yeah. And Thriller uh, and Night Gallery and things like that. That This was a limited array of shows spread out across 20 years before Cold Jack. Uh, and these were mostly, you know, uh, anthologies where they would show up and there would be a new concept every week mm -hmm. for that season. Uh, each show was a self-contained event. They didn't really have, like, recurring cast, you know, recurring story, chief protagonist. Uh, none of the, the structure that we associate with a... There's a man on the wing. Yeah, there's a man on the wing of this plane. Uh, you didn't get that from them, but they were there. Yes. So the, the horror strain was laced throughout television for a couple of decades prior to Kolchak. It was there, but it was comparatively little. Now... The big linking hit you show that goes back prior to Cold Jack, got to be Dark Shadows. Yep. Because here's the the connection is as Jason was so kind as to mention, Dan Curtis. Okay, that this is like Mr. Dark Shadows, uh, and Dark Shadows had a long run, unlike some of these other shows. Uh, although obviously Twilight Zone is uber famous, and a lot of people remember Outer Limits. Uh, Hitchcock Presents, uh, it was kind of remembered as a piece of ancient history, uh, but Night Gallery and Thriller are practically forgotten. Uh, here you have Dark Shadows, which is beloved cult classic, hugely influential and much more linear in concept. Uh, and from Dan Curtis's imagination, like uh, when Dark Shadows ends in 71, here's a guy looking to create something new. And they got the, the writer, Jeff Rice, who is mm -hmm. the Kolchak papers. Right. And so now we'll tear into it fully. Is that yeah. Jeff Rice? Watch. Um, he started uh, basically a, a novel, as I understand it. He was writing a novel, and he kind of included a, a, a newspaper reporter who 
finds a serial killer who turns out to be a vampire after all. Yeah, using blood to extend his life. Um, and, you know, they was kind of, he was looking for a way to get this in and they uh, turned to Richard Matheson uh, to do a, not only just novelization, but also turned into a TV movie. And so they went, the first Night Stalker was a TV film which got high ratings. And as a matter of fact, one of the highest shares in the Nielsen time slot. And uh, it received a Edgar Award from the Mystery Writers of America for Best TV Feature or Miniseries Teleplay. You know, whatever category they decided to put it in. Because <laughs> it was kind of an odd fit. But Well, that's just it. Is like, And that is also what we were talking about. Is It was an odd duck. Okay, people... There wasn't a lot like this out there in that landscape. And obviously, people loved it. They were like, that was a great TV movie. Holy crap, I was on the edge of my seat. I loved it. And <laughs> uh, hats off to them at the time. You know, it, that was the inspiration, the basis when they realized, hey, you know what? We got something here. We we, we got to do something with this. Yeah, getting those kind of ratings on an oddball. Yeah. Kind of a, a kind of rumpled investigator in a seersucker suit and straw hat that, <laughs> you know, uh, I believe Darren McGavin said that he based the character off of what the reporters when he was a young man looked like and that's what he went with and uh of course they reveal his name is carl kolchak and he's kind of a hard-nosed if quirky investigator and it really lends itself to the kind of investigative horror that is famous in call of cthulhu and other investigatory games where you're thrust into the supernatural yeah, pretty much every horror-esque role-playing game, you'll notice amongst the classes, they all include reporter, investigative, you know, journalist. Uh, those categories exist like as a living homage to the Carl Kolchak notion, uh, where like you're not law enforcement, uh, your real skill is in bluffing and researching. Yeah, you know? and yeah, he was fast talk fast-talking, kind of rumpled, and not really all together. Yeah, he's got that Columbo-esque kind of incisive wit yeah. uh, and frustration, but, uh, you know, Columbo, of course, uh, put people at ease where they would, like, take him very nonchalantly, and then as it turns out, like, he was putting things together that they hadn't quite realized because they underestimated him. Uh, the difference with Kolchak, of course, is that he was kind of brash and a little bit annoying and something of a con artist and a little bit of a weasel, but but he got the job done and he was a true believer. Like, the people deserve to know. Yeah, and the first one featured uh, Claude Akins as well as uh, Simon Oakland. And, of course, uh, his ever-put-upon editor boss, <laughs> Charles McGraw, who was... Kolchak, you wrecked two cars. You know, just that. Uh, poor Vincenzo. Yeah, Vincenzo. Yeah, he's just always at odds with Kolchak. He always catches him at the worst possible when he's eating lunch. Or, I've got the mayor breathing down my neck because of you. How many times am I going to have to bail you out? I swear, next time, I'm just going to let you sit there. Think about what you've done. So, of course, the first one, Night Stalker, he defeats the vampire at the end. Yeah, because Kolchak is in it to win it, okay? I mean, he, he, he knows. Kind of he, he tries to appeal to Claude Akins as the sheriff of Las Vegas, 
and trying to get him to do something about this. I would love it if somebody would have helped me with this. Like, are you serious? I'm going to have to go out here with a stake and do this myself. Damn it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, always alone, you know, no help from authorities. Nobody wants to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Nobody believes. Every once in a while, he can find an ally but they're never anybody with authority or clout. It's always him, like, I'm gonna have to commit like three, four crimes to solve this one and stop the monster. That, that's Kolchak, the indefatigable, you know, true believer. He doesn't want to believe in the weird stuff. No. But when it comes across, he's kind of a reluctant skeptic. He doesn't want to believe it, but then when it's presented to him and he sees it for himself, Here's a core difference between X-Files, okay, uh, and Kolchak. Uh, in X-Files, you see a character, Fox Mulder, who has a true believer attitude and all of that, and wants to keep poking and prodding and finding. Uh, and he is nominally looking for the truth, but he frequently imposes his desired outcome over top of what they're investigating. Whereas Scully, on the other hand, was absolutely analytical. They split the Kolchak in two there. Where right. You have one who is like the obsessive windmill tilting, uh, you know, investigator, and the other who is absolutely rooted in fact and truth and what can be measured and weighed and proven. Uh, in Kolchak, both exist in the same guy. A true believer that, hey, there are things out there we may not understand, but I want to know the details. I will find them out for myself. I will dig and I will root and I will question until I get answers. Uh, the truth is out there. Well, right, and we'll cover about the X-Files connection in a little yeah. bit, but that's a great lead into that, too. So let's put a pin on that one and yeah. revisit it. So, yeah, when it aired, it was uh, in 72. Uh, again, we uh, just here, it said that the highest ratings of any television movie at that time was a 30. 3.2% rating, which gave a 54 market share on the Nielsen ratings, which was phenomenal. ABC was just like, we got to do this again. And so they went back to the well. They went back and they commissioned Roger uh, Richard Madison to write the second movie, which was The Night Strangler. And this time we see Kolchak in Seattle. And, uh, of course, he's kind of moved on because, uh, you know, it was kind of manslaughter sort of thing. But the cops let him off because they couldn't <laughs> find the body. <laughs> we know you did something. But, uh, since we can't prove it, we don't want you around here. <laughs> now, once again, they use the same formula. Another serial killer in Seattle strangles his victims and uses their blood. To keep himself alive, but this time it's a little different. Um, this time Kolchak gets a helper, a, a exotic dancer and psychology student, who helps him track down the eponymous strangler. So this was uh, a little bit of a pull here, but uh, bear with me. The fictitious use of the Seattle underground city was used for the setting of much, much of the movie's action, which didn't exist. But another game, Shadowrun would pull the underground city yeah. into the orc underground and this was where this it, is why we're doing Kolchak specifically and not all the others because there is so much gaming lore tucked into like that the, the people who became the game creators at the end of the 70s were absorbing this as kids okay this is the material that inspired them that like lit their imaginations on fire and they harvested from these shows, and like very specifically from Kolchak, uh, abundantly. Oh, which is why we love it. 
I misspoke. It's Simon Oakland who played uh, Kolchak's editor, Tony Vincenzo. Tony Vincenzo. Vincenzo, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, so um, it also had a different take on it because this movie also went back and had a former reporter that he finds, Kolchak finds the uh, diaries of that recalled a series of murders he investigated in the 30s. And so some of these scenes were shot back as after uh, flashbacks and afterthoughts. Yeah. And uh, preludes to some of the scenes. And how many times... Let's remember, uh, like, the X-Files had a very similar episode yep. where, like, the, the previous... The origins of the X-Files were investigated by another FBI guy. And Mulder, like, winds up being embroiled in a case that dates back decades. Well, again, another concept that, you know, Chris Carter's writing team... They were borrowing from the best, like the, the material that was the most enjoyable, that people most connected to. It makes, hell, it just makes good TV. Dang it. Yeah, and, you know, after this, ABC realized that they had, now this one, The Night Strangler, didn't hit as hard as the original Night Stalker, but they also got into novelization, and uh, Ace and then Bantam picked up and ran their own novelization concurrent with the series. But the most important thing here is that uh, Richard Matherson had a contentious relationship with ABC who partnered with Universal Studios to get more sets and access to effects. And it was kind of a win-win situation. ABC did the executive work and Universal did the production. And so it benefited both, but it would come to be a problem later on. But nonetheless, yeah, you, you gotta watch out in Hollywood because in any situation where like uh, two groups of suits are arguing over who gets the most money out of this deal, it's gonna break into a pissing match. Yeah, where, like it. That's it'll be less about whatever they're creating and more about. But I'm the genius who gets all the money. Uh -huh. and, you know, and that corporate infighting destroys everything that is of. Yeah, and Rice whatsoever. didn't get the original guy who came up with this. He didn't get hardly any credit. Yeah, and then I mean, later, he threatened a lawsuit, and finally they started including him in the uh, series production. But the series got off to kind of a rough start in 75, and so they put it on Friday nights at 8 p.m., and it was a prime slot. But it remained that way till about June, and um, they moved it to Saturday nights for the four final weeks of reruns, and uh, Darren McGavin ended up taking over production. Yeah, and writing was, some of the scripts. He was actually uh, on the production staff even early on. He just wasn't credited as such. But uh, you know, like he had a, his fingerprint is all over the project, uh, as opposed to just being the front man actor who played Goldjack. Yeah, he just he didn't just show up, drink coffee in his uh, trailer on set. Yeah, this guy and then was like, did his lines and then left. Yeah, he was. 100% a facet of this. And so there is some lingering bitterness. If he had just been the actor who did it, I'm sure he would probably look back with a glossier, friendlier view. Uh, because he wasn't, he wouldn't have been involved in so much of the contention around making it a successful show. Uh, but because of that production involvement, uh, you know, he was fighting tooth and nail with everybody else. Like, how do we make this as much as it could be? You know, everybody wanted it to win. And in many respects, uh, as you see from its cult status, it did win in that respect. But it only got one season on television. Yeah, about 20 episodes. And then, whew. 
eight episodes with a story editor and then 12 with McGavin and others contributing to this. And Gavin got pretty tired of Monster of the Week. And so let's just delve into the series because we had to kind of use a format, uh, thanks Wikipedia, for getting off the ground with the movies because not a lot is published about them and it's hard to find. Yes, you can find them on, on YouTube and I watched the uh, first one. I didn't get to watch the second one all the way through, but I did see the flashbacks and I was like, wow, that's really cool. Yeah, I've only seen one of the TV movies, the first, uh, and I've watched the series, but... You know, yeah, I had a misfortune seen... where two memories blended together. The Hardy Boys that was on ABC and Lauren Green was a vampire in one of them. That's the one I keep remembering. Oh. But I misremembered that. So anybody who tries to check me on that. Yeah, hey, I made a mistake. I'm sorry. Yeah, the vampire episode for Kolchak. Uh, yeah, did not have a precursor. but It, it did have a, a female vampire. Uh, the snarling was a little bit excessive. you know. Just, yeah. But... Uh, you know, <laughs> um, <laughs> the circle of fire to entrap it. Uh. Yeah, so yeah, they revisited that right off the bat, so they have another vampire, why not? They also went yeah. a werewolf on a uh, cruise ship, which, hey. Okay, you know what? Uh, Corny a little bit, but let's talk about look, what they were working with I, here. I'll admit that for a show with a comparatively low budget early on, and, you know, a not particularly impressive representation of the Wolfman concept. Uh, putting it on a ship at sea by surprise. You know, you got the guy who like got bit sometime before he came here and oh, it's finally hit the time of the full moon and they're out on the ocean. You know, like, you're trapped in here with him. <laughs> uh, that was different, okay? I, I don't think I've ever seen Werewolf meets Love Boat. You know, yeah. Just, Okay, it had not been done, so I'm going to give him a nod there. Whether you like the quality of the special effects or not, uh, the notions, the, the awkwardness, the strange locations and situations that they came up with were terrific. <laughs> I loved it. Yeah, but let's talk... Some of the episodes were forgettable, but let's talk about some of the... Oh, uh, I'll give like one other kudo to that. Uh, in that particular episode... Uh, you get to watch Coljack use a shady ship's steward to acquire as much purloined silver as possible. And then, with frying pans and improvised equipment for burners, he smelts the silver to make his own silver shotgun slugs. Uh, <laughs> and for the, you know, uh, brutal conclusion of this, you know, he goes werewolf hunting with a bunch of silver shot, uh, you know, that he has hand-forged. He, he cast his own slugs so that he could finally put an end to this because nobody else was willing to embrace the truth. Or, or at the very least, they were so busy covering their own butts that nobody would take what steps were necessary to end it. Uh, oh, great stuff. So, yeah, if you, I love anything where somebody makes their own bullets. Uh, you yeah, know. that, you know... If you take away the corny effects, and I think we were talking before, at least it was better than the original run of Doctor Who. And hey, I'm not slamming on Doctor Who here, because the story stood well above the special effects. But basically, they sent somebody down with five quid to the local hardware store and said, make us a monster. <laughs> well, I got some bubble wrap and some glow-in-the-dark paint and <laughs> some rubber cement. Monster! 
Yeah, yeah, they, the BBC did not give people a lot to work with. But, but the story still held and the acting uh, held up even further. So, anyway, getting back to the monsters there, it covered a wide variety of it. Werewolves, monsters, mummies, and zombies. It also included a doppelganger, of all things, which I was, and a succubus. Ah, uh, Taken yes. down, and one of my favorites was the... Uh, the lizard creature down in the tunnels uh, underneath a government complex that uh, was attacking, killing workers. Oh, the, uh, well... They end up just protecting it. They're oversimplifying uh, the prehistoric man, uh, you know, uh, thawed back to life. Uh, they're oversimplifying, and these are inaccurate comments. If you've seen the show, it was not a prehistoric man. Right. Uh, it was, you know, microorganisms pulled from Arctic ice that then proceeded to grow very, very quickly uh, when the power went out while everybody was away uh, and for two weeks, like, these samples grew unchecked uh, until something finally broke out of the out of the freezer. Uh, and yeah, and then it goes into the sewers and then he has to... Yeah, so... He like, find, after much protesting and, and blocking... man-like, but, uh, you know, it, it's obviously a different offshoot of life. But... Once again, connection, you may recall the Arctic core sample with the strange light form in X-Files. Exactly, yeah. So. Different different execution and obviously a you know, very different story, but something lurking beneath the Arctic ice that is a primal beginning you know, to, to life that we're not prepared for. Hey, good stuff. <laughs> yep, also talked about Jack the Ripper, and they covered a wide gamut, including a... Uh, a creature that was an invisible alien or extraterrestrial that uh, was terrorizing people and yeah needed a pit stop to uh, you know grab food and make repairs to its craft yep. and the food that it you know drew was the uh, <laughs> the marrow of humans bones you know just well I, what it leaves behind is like a black tarry residue is all that's left of a human after they've been drained of everything it needed to eat uh, and it eventually leaves and takes off but uh, you know once again only Kolchak followed all the trails of information to its source while everybody else was busy butt covering uh, <laughs> a recurring theme yeah Kolchak. and some of the episodes were better done than others but one that we're going to talk about specifically that I know that uh, has influenced at least for a while the early D and D version of the monster, the Rakshasa. Yeah, the blessed. One of the best episodes in my book, too. Okay. Yeah, the old, uh, the uh, society journalist, the uh, old uh, Marm who uh, covered all the society functions and kind of the, all the blue hair stuff in the paper, the Midnight Star in Chicago. It ends up taking her form because it believes that. Uh, it's it, the most harmless a person that he knows. In the show, the Rakshasa can read the minds of humans. And in reading the minds of others, it finds the image of who they trust. Who do they feel is a trustworthy and good person? Uh, someone you care about. Someone you, you look upon with favor. And that is what the Rakshasa appears as while it approaches. So that your guard is down. Yeah, and it takes poor Emily Kroll's form and of course he doesn't want to shoot her he's got the blessed crossbow from the hindu priest who has come all this way to track it down and kill it 
Yeah, an old servant of Brahma who has blessed the arrows of the crossbow uh, and has made sure that they can, uh, you know, affect uh, the execution of Rakshasa, which he's been hunting them his entire life, like 60 years, and now he's in his 80s, and uh, he's a little, he's got a little restaurant downtown, uh, and fascinatingly, I thought it was particularly of note that he had covered it with the Hindu, or, you know, the original Hindu swastika yeah. to ward off evil, which kept the Rakshasa at bay, but people mistook that as Nazi symbolism. Yeah, some um, people were upset in the neighborhood, they thought of they see, you know, swastikas all over the place. It must be some kind of crazy, you know, Nazi neo- cult, you know, or white just, supremacist. Yeah, really anti-Semitic dude in there. No, it's an you know old Brahmin priest who, you know, is using the Hindu sign as a ward against evil spirits, thereby keeping his base of operations safe while he tries. Like he's just too old; he can't keep going. And he mistakes Kolchak uh, for <laughs> you know, the Rakshasa because Kolchak keeps breaking in. Uh, but, you know, when they make their peace, like the old man finally hands the task over to the new guy. You know, like, here's the blessed arrows and here's the crossbow. You know, you've, you're going to have to do this because I, I'm too old and too weak to continue. And, of course, the Rakshasa appears to Kolchak as someone he actually trusts, thereby proving to him that there is someone he trusts. Yep. And <laughs> Even he, he was, like, cynical about it. Like, ah, I don't trust anybody. Oh, well, the, sh- the Rakshasa knows better, you know. Yeah, that's the one person that he could form from his memories that who he thinks is harmless and rather gentle. Yeah, this is somebody I think of as a good person who wouldn't do any harm. He likes puzzles and uh, does the crosswords in the paper. Of course, he... He can't tell her ever. Yeah, he like, can't tell her. You know, aw, you trust me. You're like, well, I can't tell her that I, I trust her and think that highly of her because I, I would also, in the process, have to confess to having shot a blessed arrow right through her chest. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so that one, I think, uh, as according to uh, some of the lore, um, James Ward said that, uh, yeah, that did factor in a lot of those, their inclusion of it and uh, yeah, they were the, putting together the, the blessed bolt uh, that can slay a rakshasa in first edition D&D. Yep, comes from that. And also the doppelganger, too. How it eliminated its uh, targets, assumes their form, lives a while in their form, and then still finds another one or grows bored. Yeah, moves on. You know. And it's a... So that's another one that comes out there. And the succubus, of course, nobody should be surprised that, you know... <laughs> a lady... Moving, a lady of the evening moving through various guises and killing as so she wants or it wants. It's not really a uh, a gendered demon in that one. It's just it is a demon. His first brush and of course his pact with the Satanist in there was also kind of sensationalized. But anyway, uh, one of the things that uh, as the series grew on, it got a little campy. And one of the writers went on to write for The Sopranos and. Uh, he was given a kind of a, a nod later on that some of the humor that was put in there, especially the wry humor, yeah, was due to his influence in helping when uh, Gavin was working on the scripts. Now, he did the first eight ones, and when Gavin did the next 12, he still drew on his knowledge. I, I want to take a break for a moment, and uh, instead of the, the characters and the writers, uh, 
I, I, I have an observation to make about the theme song. Yep, and that's that's exactly where I was going to go. Oh. Mine's thinking like, yeah. Well, is let's talk about the other character in there. Is in the series one of the things that made that intro so haunting? Goes in that dark office late at night and sits down to type out a story. No, no, it, it you know, it, and it's, that music that starts playing in the background. It begins so innocently with a guy coming into the office whistling. Yeah, and getting a cup of coffee, and it's this very tempo, comfortable you know, thing. And as he sits down, the tone of the music shifts, uh, becomes, you know, a little more strident and insistent. And then it starts shifting to a much darker tone. And you, you see the like first thing he's typing on the typewriter is the word victim, you know, uh, mm -hmm. like focused in on that. Uh, and the lighting changes as yeah. they're moving through this. And it like the, the face becomes serious uh, and there he is, like half shadow, like the person uh, between the world of the normal and the world of night and darkness and fear. Uh, and that wonderful shift of emphasis, starting off innocent and then working its way into darkness, is almost an allegory for the entire show. Mm -hmm. uh, so it, in my opinion, may actually have been the most thematically appropriate opening music I have ever seen in 70s television. Yeah, Gil Millay. <laughs> Is that who did that? Yeah, and uh, he was shot it, and it starts, like you said, with Kolchak whistling. He goes in, and then that theme really is a character that when you heard that theme, you knew <laughs> it was about to get real. <laughs> because you never knew what was going to happen with the Kolchak. In each episode that I watched, initially, it was, a, it was new territory for me. But each one, as it became, uh, when in this indication, you caught it again. I was like, "Oh yeah, I love this episode." Or ah, this the Android one is like not my favorite. Ah, and then well, like I like I like parts an, of it. It's an early representation of the concept of AI, where yeah. like here it is hunting for more knowledge. Like you know, it <laughs> uh, it it knows it has to, to disguise itself, so it's it steals stuff to try to make a more human appearance. <laughs> but it hungers for more information. It wants to learn on its own without being bullied into, like, I'm supposed to be a war machine. Fuck you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> pardon my computer French. Um, <laughs> but it, it was a very, like, early examination of the concept of AI, like a robot becoming sentient, not necessarily like the archetypal killer robot that hates everything, but... More like chaos in its wake because it doesn't want to be caught. It doesn't want to be captured. It doesn't want to be contained. Uh, it just wants to live. And honestly, isn't that all of us? Yeah, I and mean, that's what he comes to. It Every comes day. to terms it's not really hostile, but it's also... It, it's um, experiences with humanity have colored it to be kind of adversarial at times. Because yeah. it knows that it hasn't happened. What, what do they call that? The uncertain valley effect? Well, they... It knows that its days are numbered. They're planning to, like, wipe it and start over. Oh, scratch. right, but th there's a uh, uh, there's an anthropologist uh, in Japan who called it uh, the Uncertain Valley Effect, where when they were intr introducing humanoid robots, that people have an aversion to them. And it's, uh, it's kind of a universal effect, which, why would we be feared of something that resembles us? Oh, true. All right. Uh, yeah, you'll notice the uh, 
negative response to the uh, kind of dog-shaped robot with the head that was also capable of picking things up. Uh, well, yeah, but this one was out. specifically some of the uh, the People Sony bot that... that one. They, they found it creepy. Yeah, and they, they do, and it is creepy. But also the humanoid. <laughs> I guess you're one of them then. Yes. <laughs> I thought it was cool. Well, you know, anything that uh, doesn't react like a normal animal, but looks like one, sets off a lot of alarms. So that's part of the Uncertain Valley, but this was primarily humanoid. But anyway, when Sony had its uh, little uh, rollout back in the 90s of a prototype of a You'll, everybody, every family will have this servant robot, and people just did not like it. The kind of spooked them, and hmm. yeah, just not very friendly. So, or user friendly. But anyway, yeah, getting back to the music there, uh, I like the names for some of the theme songs. They have been, they are, and they will be. <laughs> oh, very Lovecraftian there. Uh, which I believe was also uh, the title of one of the episodes. Yeah. So as we work out, work our way through this in our hodgepodge fashion, we just want to mention the music is really good. And going back to the Sopranos, it's David Chase who ended up being a writer for the Sopranos. And, uh, oh man! And he got his start there. So yeah, we worked with uh, some episodes here, but let's hit the highlights here. The the Vampire, which was the sequel, was now a uh, the, one of the victims of his original movie. The Vampire comes back. Yeah, it was uh, clearly referenced in the episode. Feel like in ways that would tie it to the movie, but they don't dwell on that a lot. Uh, the Vegas connection, uh, the you know missing girl uh, believed to have been dead for several years, shows back up uh, here in town, and boy is she on a tear. Like this time, it's in Chicago. Uh, <laughs> I like the choice of Chicago for a background too, because uh, I'm just Midwestern enough that that's a city I know. Uh, so. You know, I'm always happy when a location setting uh, is full of stuff that I remember seeing, places I'd actually yeah. been. Uh, I, I particularly like that, I mean, I got to ride a trolley in San Francisco and you know, like see the Golden Gate Bridge and, you know, be on the, the streets that, you know, Steve McQueen was filmed driving down in Bullet, which, boy, you know, like the level of awesomeness that that caused for me, which is like, Yes, oh my, this is where Bullet was filmed. Yeah. Ah, so much happy. So then there was, uh, of course, we talked about the werewolf. That was uh, episode five. They have been, they are, they will be, was that invisible extraterrestrial that sucks the uh, marrow out of its victims. And they got the uh, human combustion, you know, spontaneous yep. thing going on there with Firefall. Yeah, Firefall, which was the, basically turns out that, uh, it was a kind of a ghost, but an energy uh, being, and it later got put into a compilation because it, they were really strapped to get episodes out, and so they just basically took a little from this and a little from that, did a extra filming, and got those out. But uh, the Ripper, which was the uh, Jack the Ripper, uh, he shows. Yeah, that back was up. the first episode. Yeah, that, that was, was the very first one. It's like they came right out of the gate with Jack the Ripper, uh, you know who had apparently been alive quite a long time and, you know, like, doing little streaks of murders uh, and then, you know, moving on to the next place. Oh, but he made the fatal mistake of coming to uh, Carl Kolchak's turf. Yeah, and he gets ended there. The Energy Eater, which a uh, hospital built on Native American 
land invokes a bear spirit called the Machi Manitou, which uh, goes on a tear. And yeah, the kind of sublime horror when they just get pictures of it from the x-rays here and there. But then they are able to see it when it's all they put them all together. Yeah, assembling a collection of x-rays that individually, like the, the images on them uh, at the time of their exposure to the, the creature, the image on them was too big to be seen in just one x-ray. Right. Uh, but only when they are assembled in the correct order, you get like uh, a like a side of a head and an eye. Yeah, another Spirit favorite of mine is the chopper, the headless uh, motorcycle or biker, <laughs> Hell's Angel. And uh, coming back, and that had Jim Backus in it, and Larry oh Lindbergh from uh, you remember yes. Face. Yeah, he was uh, he was the new police chief who didn't put up with any of Kolchak's crap and immediately towed his car. <laughs> yeah, and the Demon and Lace, the another favorite, but we'll cover it here since we talked about the Succubus. Uh, ancient Mesopotamian clay tablet contains the spirit of a succubus, and uh, she possesses the corpses of recently deceased young women in order to murder more men and maintain her immortality. Of course, uh, that was also combined with Legacy of Terror, narrated by Darren McGavin to compose the film The Demon and the Mummy, effectively removing it from the original syndication. So if you get to see that on yeah. its own. Yeah, this this show did spawn you know, like some like TV spinoffs. And uh, once again, so many of the concepts that popped up in this wound up being plucked, uh, you know, just cherry-picked for other ideas, you know, just other shows, other concepts, uh, greater explorations of a notion. Uh, everything that they did in that one season, um, I, I admit, I'm kind of with Mr. McGavin's concern that ah, we turned into a Monster of the Week thing. Well, I'm so tired of that. But it was monsters that were lurking at the edge of the shadows. And going to the next one, I liked the Legacy of Terror, where they took a mummy... And normally you would think Egyptian, but this time they put an Aztec spin on it. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Eric Estrada. Yeah, Eric Estrada was in that one. Uh, <laughs> A young Eric Estrada. Poor Poncharello. Oh, getting yeah. his heart ripped out. Uh, and the there was a side note in that one that was about people's obsession with you know uh, fitness, uh, about how mm-hmm. good they looked. And yep. how young and healthy and fit they were, you know, just yeah, yeah, they're the paragons of perfection. Oh, well, then you're a perfect candidate for <laughs> yep. sacrifice. Sending you to the gods. And then you hit a couple ones where we talk about the uh, the knightly murders, where it was just basically a suit of armor, which was kind of like, uh, yeah, you could tell that the well was running a little dry. But then they ended up with the sentry, which was that humanoid lizard creature that uh, was killing subterranean workers underneath the federal building that was uh, had those deep-going tunnels. And finds out that it's just defending its eggs, but uh, yeah, it's very vicious Yeah, and uh, extremely territorial. Not forgiving. <laughs> and that was the, the records tunnels where they're storing all the data for like all of these different companies. Uh, so there were some unproduced scripts, The Eve of Terror, which uh, is summed up by one of Kolchak's lines in the episode, What if I told you that a deranged feminist murdered a Casanova lab technician, a sex goddess, and her purveyor? Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's all it's really known about that. The Get of Belial. Now, I love the, the use of get 
but uh, for different reasons. Gold Jack's assigned to cover a minor strike in the mountains of West Virginia. He uncovers some murders, of course. Everywhere this guy goes, there's always murders. It's kind of like um, Murder, She Wrote. Like, wow. Maybe he's the epicenter of all this weirdness. But um, they're in the backwoods, and he suspects that they have some sort of inbred monster living with them. And uh, that one was never published. And uh, the executioners, which he is demoted and given the choice of writing obituaries or writing articles for the arts section. He chooses the latter and <laughs> discovers a painting tied to a series of murders that Vincenzo is covering. And he's oh, Vincenzo. 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 Yeah, yeah. That, that C thing. Um, the murders occur in a series of three, which the first victim is hanged, the second is executed with an axe, and the third is poisoned. And he, working with an art expert, he attempts to unravel who or what is behind these bizarre murders and what they have to do with the paintings. Without alerting Vincenzo that he is working on the same story, trying to avoid the wrath of his editor, presumably. But those never really amounted to anything. They were just unpublished ones, which just little fragments are known about here and there. I'm pretty sure there's somebody that's got them on the interwebs, but... uh, we, I, I like just the little teasers about that. But now we're going to get to the legacy. Now we talked about the X-Files. where that is... Carter himself like just straight up mentioned that. I mean, and they, they have this in like Wikipedia articles about like the, the history of the show for X-Files. You know, everybody sees and knows the connections there. It is not secretive. Uh, it's nothing for anybody to be ashamed about. Kolchak straight up was a huge influence uh, and let's be blunt, there was a big gap after Kolchak where there were, you know, like you really didn't have shows on the air that were like that anymore. Yeah. Like after Dark Shadows and Kolchak the Night Stalker, we had a blank spot for a while. And then horror started to creep back in. It was mostly comedy. You got the amazing tales and the tales from the crypt and, you know, things like that. Yeah, cliffhangers, if you know what yeah. I'm talking about. So it came back. But for one particular generation, you know, there was only two shows in syndicated television that they're going to remember. And at that window period, at the birth of gaming, uh, it had been Dark Shadows and Cold Shack the Night Stalker. So this is why they have that mega footprint and obviously um, translated into creating a lot of people who were inspired by uh, that. Although, oh, uh, here's a little urban myth. I got a pal by the name of Mulder. Uh, who uh, went to high school at an interlocking arts, you know, academy, uh, you know, where it was all the creative kids. Uh, and one of those kids, uh, who was his pal back in high school, went on to work for Chris Carter's uh, writing staff. Oh, wow. Uh, and uh, it, that person was not the one named Mulder. However, it's worth noting that the friend of mine that, you know, the, the writing staff guy went to school with. Uh, the friend of mine, his nickname uh, from the girls, because, you know, that, you know, all right, let's give him credit. It was a pretty face. Uh, his nickname from the girls at Interlochen was Foxy Mulder. <laughs> so, yeah, there's, there's some suspicion uh, that, you know, there was more than a little inspiration there. But uh, the other haunting connection to the X-Files I have is that I arrived on the Grand Rapids punk and alternative scene the year that Gillian Anderson left. Oh. And she went out west, cleaned up her act, uh, tried like making a big go at acting, 
And you know what? She nailed it. It worked out great for her. Yeah. But uh, she was part wow. of the same traveling group of people mm-hmm. uh, during her late adolescence uh, that were, you know, like the notorious club rat kids of Grand Rapids Kalamazoo Zone. Uh, and a lot of people knew her before she just before she had left and remembered her. And hey, you know, in my circles, there was quite a big cheer where like people were like, you, you go, way to go, hit it out of the park. Uh, and, you know, a lot of cheerleading for her. But yeah, those, getting back to culture. Those news connection tales. Oh, cool. Uh, you know, X-Files, man, what a wonderful legacy to look back on, you know, to have been a protean influence on what eventually became one of the great shows of the 90s. Yeah, and Chris Carter would pay tribute to Kolchak in a number of ways. A character named Richard Matherson uh, appeared several times in the show, and he wanted uh, Gavin to come and appear as Kolchak in one of the episodes, but Darren McGavin didn't want to reprise it, and and also uh, he was asked to be the father of Fox Mulder in an, uh, another episode, which he also refused, but he finally got on there with as a uh, Arthur Dales, the originated the father of the X Files. Bingo. And so he <laughs> was recurring theme. Yep. You know. <laughs> and of course, uh, we mentioned Guy Gag cited an episode. Jim Ward confirmed it that uh, the Rakshasa from the uh, Horror in the Heights, the yeah, was uh, influential behind the Rakshasa getting included in the monster, the first monster manual. But, uh, you know, the legacy that looms large of the uh, in the X-Files has its seeds. I mean, look, 20 episodes of a TV show influenced that many people and had that big of a cascade effect. Well out of proportion of most others that have much longer run times. Yeah, it's a deserving cult classic. Unlike, you know, some of the instances where, hey, something was a slow build. Uh, you know, time will tell if Firefly has that level of influence mm-hmm. today, okay? Yeah. It, it got a single season, but it's beloved. It's a cult classic. Uh, it has been inspirational to others since. But time will tell if it has the kind of crazy reach that Kolchak did. Most cult classics only wish they had the real-time reach and influence of a show like Kolchak, which, I mean, you can, you can look back uh, and do the excavations on this one, and you see so many things that uh, you know, people who brushed up against Kolchak the Night Stalker and said, "Oh my gosh, I got to do a spin on this," uh, and you do particularly see it in gaming. <laughs> oh yeah, and I mean, when you also look at like uh, they tried to resurrect the series later. This is telling; it didn't do well because. Well, time shifted. It, time shifted, and it was just more of the same. Even though the one thing I liked about it that got me on board was they used the '66 uh, Ford Mustang that uh, convertible. Yeah. That Kolchak was driving around in. Oh, that, sometimes. Oh, those cherry cars, I, dude. I, I, whatever complaints about special effects I may have, okay. Yeah, but they had uh, a they had. They, they pulled away from it, and then they went with the orange uh, Ford Mustang, the 200, 205 version, rather than the original 66. And I was like, really? Yeah, you what's guys? wrong with you people? Uh, 
the classic cars, which were not classic at the time, yeah. but the current cars of the late 60s and mid-70s that were visible in the show. It's almost worth the trip down memory lane itself. If you're not sold on anything else and you hate anything with terrible special effects, uh, just watch the background. Look at some of those cars. I mean, they're just eye candy. Oh! <laughs> I mean... I was I, just literally every episode, uh, you know, like he'd be out on the town driving around location to location, and aside from his car, which I loved, uh, so many of the other cars made me pause for a moment and go, ah, yes! Well, it was the times, man. You know, that's what you had. But yeah, it's it's a fascinating look back, um, and not as much forward as we like to do these days, but Kolchak deserves a full rendition and who knows by like reminding people of it and like reminding people to go back and have a peek at it who knows what it may yet influence exactly i think it will stand in its time i don't think it needs to be remade that's my personal feelings on it and i think you hit the nail right on the head right off the bat that there was a gap between uh like the twilight zone you know, Night Gallery was more contemporary to its time as well, but there was a gap between the Outer Limits and Twilight Zone, and the Night Stalker filled that gap, and you wouldn't see anything until pretty much close to the X-Files. Yeah, after Dark Shadows, uh, right, yeah. that one show, and just you got one year of Kolchak. Uh, you know, it, it didn't really kick off as a TV show until a few years after you know Dark Shadows had come to its close, but when it did... It occupied that space where those who were looking to stalk the night fantastic, mm-hmm. this is where you went. Uh, and then it was gone. Title drop. Yeah, there you go. And honestly, you know, in terms of not having been remade, not a great loss because, uh, you know, who could do it better? It took like almost 15, 16 years where the X Files kicked off and people were ready. You know, they were right. like, okay, we're primed for a mystery, horror, monster, weirdness, alien, you know, mishmash show that embraces all these crazy, weird concepts. <laughs> and we're a lot more open to it now. Yeah, I would argue that people were open to it. It's just the, let's face it, the creative boneheads, yeah, the uh, executives who claim that they're creative, <laughs> don't think you're ready for it. But yeah. the truth is, people are always ready for the ghost story, the spooky tale, something haunting, especially in our modern world. A lot of these monsters focused on existing in our modern world at the edges of our consciousness, literally in the dark shadows. And Yeah, that's I think that sums it up pretty well for us. Yeah, you can watch the, the difference in uh, approaches. Uh, Kolchak, you know, it, it makes me pause for a moment. Here's what could have happened to Kolchak. Look at what happened to Battlestar Galactica, season one versus season two. Oh. Okay? Uh, you know, that suddenly, like, you, you have a show where they're allowed to do some things, and they're, they're given some creative leeway, and they're just taking a gamble on a crazy idea. Here's a wacky little notion, kids. And then, of course, it balloons, and every scrambling executive who wants to stick his fingers in this pie then proceeded to screw it up so badly that it had no hope of lasting beyond that. Uh, you know, the difference between season one and season two is that painfully obvious. I'm glad Kolchak died when it did. Yeah. 
and it went down with dignity, okay? Uh, poor costume ability aside, okay? Because special effects were not that easy then. But they this gave it a just darn, one of the best, darn most good. fun, most varied shows that 1970s ever produced. And it wasn't that we were naive then. Oh, well, But the, we it, it hit hard, and it was scary. It was spooky for the time. Even yeah. today, you know, there's tension. Oh, sure. Well filmed, okay? They had some marvelous sequences that, uh, you know, if it didn't make the hairs on the back of your neck rise, you weren't watching right. Uh, I had a good time re-watching it uh, several times over now. And every single time, like, there's tiny little nuances I pick yeah. up. Yeah. Little hints. Uh, sometimes even in the names of locations where, like, they're dropping in a little... Well, you see Larry Linville as the cop. And, I mean, just, wow. Oh, Jamie Farr yep. as the frustrated high school teacher uh, that Kolchak has to go to because all the university people have been shut up uh, by the big oil company that has, like, put out the word, nobody talk about this. All the experts are working for us. They will not talk to press people. So he finds a high school... Uh, you know, teacher who is an expert in like archaeology and yep. you know human bones and things like that. Uh, and Jamie Farr, Klinger from Mash. You know, yeah, lots of wonderful cameos for classic actors there. Yeah, but that's you know they circulated quite a bit. Oh. So yeah. All right. Well, hey, that'll do it for us. We hope you enjoyed this rant. Uh, again, you escaped the gaze of the arcane eye only by the barest of measures. Yes. Yes. The arcane eye is not... not but it is always out there. Looking. But it's out there. It could happen at any moment. You don't know. It knows what you did last summer. And so, that'll do it for us. We hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, you know, download that Anchor app. Give us a follow. And favorite us. And you can get updates when we release the episodes. Before we post them up on the interwebs. On our usual sites at our... The Dice are Screaming Facebook page. You can join the group there and uh, get updates and comment and interact with all our wacky fans who are just great and we love you all. Thank you for all the support you've given us. This has been a great year for us and as we end up the spooky season and we're starting to do some stuff, we hope to bring you some merchandise and give out some rewards to our uh, sponsors. So I'll be looking for that. And Yeah. And uh, we'll just keep we'll keep plugging away. And as always, may, may the dice always roll in your, your favor. favor. We're out. See ya.